Welcome to Interplay. This is Michael Shapiro, your host, today with my special friend and guest, violinist and teacher. We'll get to that part. Jennifer Roig Francoli. Thank you for joining me. Hey, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. This is it's something I've been looking forward to for a while. So oh, that's thanks. great. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about some new recorded issues you've got going on right now that people can purchase or listen to on all the major platforms. But before we get to that, we see a violin behind you. Now, I know that you have years of study and professional experience behind you. Mm. Uh, you even had studied profoundly with Nathan Milstein. And when I first heard you play, I said to you, what amazing intonation you have. <laughs> I, I'm not the big bad wolf, you know. This is the big, <laughs> the big bad composer, conductor talking. Yeah, Talk to us about why do you have, as so many others do not, the most incredible intonation that I have ever heard since Nathan Milstein. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do actually credit Nathan Milstein very much for my intonation. Uh, honestly, I don't think much about my intonation, and I just I find it funny that you always tell me I have such good intonation. <laughs> but but truly, um, I had the good fortune, great fortune, to study with Nathan Milstein for five summers, from the time I was twelve, you know, through my teenage years, and. Um, that was in Switzerland. My mother's side of the family is Swiss. And um, so that was really wonderful. And one thing that really stood out from what I learned from him was how he insisted that it was not possible to have good intonation if you couldn't play without vibrato. And so I remember him insisting that I practice my scales and everything that I played without vibrato, because otherwise you can't hear if you're in tune or not. You need to be able to hit the note in tune at first, instead of what many people do is they hit the note and then vibrate immediately. And then you can sort of fudge and get away with not having you know, accurate vibrato uh, intonation and then playing the baroque violin is another <laughs> thing that really helped me with my intonation because the same for the same reason we you know learn to play without vibrato which many modern musicians actually are not able to do right away it's hard to turn it off for a lot of exactly um, correct violins. now what, let's talk about portamento for example um the what people call slides you know, the, the the space between notes the mm -hmm. ability to play portamento, I think, has gone away in many ways. Don't you agree? Yeah, although I do see it starting to come back because I have this sense that nowadays there is so much more openness to individuals choosing their own way. And we are the first, well, not me, but like my son, for instance, who's 19, he's also right. a violinist. And he told me the other day, the obvious, that it hadn't occurred to me before, that he's the first generation that is able to listen to everything. I mean, when I was a kid, we had LPs and I had a very right. limited number of LPs, including mm -hmm. Nathan Milstein and the other great violinists. But now, there's YouTube, there's Spotify, there's Apple, iTunes, there's everything. And all of the old masters have been uploaded as well as new people. I mean, there's just so much. And so people, young people are able to listen to all kinds of interpretations. So the, what you're talking about. 
Yeah, to relate to that, we I just sent you fairly recently for your son, Inescu and Menuhin playing the Bach double concerto. Yes, and actually he had, believe it or not, already listened to that. And he agrees with you totally that it is just heavenly. And it is. It's just really special. I've always said the second movement of that particular recording is literally looking into the eyes of God mm. through Bach. Yeah. And, and is... for me, Bach has always been that. It's yeah. my favorite way to connect musically. Well, one of my favorite ways to connect to, connect to God, spirit, um, my true self, my heart um, through Bach. I love Bach. So. Bach, is, Bach to, to use an Alexander technique word, is our cycle. <laughs> <laughs> right. True, well, right? and Bach, you know, I, I've been playing the Bach Chacon since I was 18, 19, and it's one of the few pieces that I have kept in my fingers and played right. regularly all these years. And um, it's the first piece that I've recorded now as a solo. We'll get to that in a second yeah. on all major platforms. That's really something to listen to. I actually heard the Bach Chacon live, played by Milstein. My uncle and aunt took me to hear him. It was really uh, an, all, an all Bach evening. What a gift. Solo Bach. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about process. Mm -hmm. Now, I know you played the Bach Chacon, the great piece of Bach, solo violin, for most of your life. Yeah. But let's say, I know for the recent recording that you did, what was your process? How did you at attack a piece that you played all these years? You've gone through so much. You're you're a soloist. You're you're a, an orchestral player. You're a teacher. You're a mother. You're a spouse. You're a friend. I was a spouse. <laughs> well, kind of now again a little bit. Whatever. But you know what I'm saying. I'm a partner now. <laughs> well, that's what they call it. You know, I hate those terms. In any event, you're with someone. That's right. Thank you've part you've partnered, as they say in Brooklyn. Right. The point of the matter is, what's your process in approaching either a piece you've played your entire life, Lecture the Shotgun, or it's something new that maybe you didn't know before? Well, I'll tell you that every single time I play anything is completely different from any other time I've played it. And ideally, great art is like that. I think that's how I think of it. It ought to be spontaneous. But of course, it's informed by my my whole life experience. And, you know, talking about the Bach Chacon in particular, um, I learned, <laughs> I'll tell you a, a short you know, story that's kind of funny. Um, one of my other teachers was Joseph Gingold at Indiana University. And when I was at IU, I was studying both with him and Stanley Ritchie, who is the great Baroque violin pedagogue. And Joseph Gingold could not understand at all why anybody would want to play the Baroque violin. He's, he's like, Jennifer, why would a pretty girl like you want to play the Baroque violin? Which was, it was funny because Joseph Gingold was a loving, wonderful person. He was, he <laughs> but, was. But then, so I learned how to play it in two completely different styles with two completely different instruments. And when I played for Gingold's masterclass one day, I wasn't sure how I wanted to play it. So I just played it the way I wanted to in that moment, which was in Baroque style on modern violin. And he listened very graciously to the whole thing. And then afterwards told me to sit down. He said, Jennifer, have a seat. And he started, <laughs> <laughs> he said, he started to tell me, you know, Jennifer, I really admire your conviction. And this was great. This was wonderful. This was wonderful. This was great. And now please do me the favor. 
and play it again the right way. The right way. All right, <laughs> and so everyone whoa, whoa, whoa. laughed, including me, and I played it again the way that he would have wanted me to play it. Now, whoa, whoa, stop uh, one second, please. We got to go to this. Yes. Gingold was a, a, a great teacher, very oh, yeah. famous man as far as violinists and orchestras. What did he mean by the quotes, right way? Well, I mean, I completely understand where he was coming from. He was, I don't remember exactly how old he was, but he was close to 90 at the time where I was working with him. It was in his last years. And he was an old style romantic musician. And that is a wonderful, beautiful way to be. And it just didn't make sense for him this newfangled way of approaching uh, Baroque music, you know, looking at old treatises and things. He just wasn't interested in that. And it sounded wrong to him. And as it did to many other people, I auditioned for Marlboro at at like a year or two after that. And I was yelled at when I played it the way I liked it, which was more in Baroque style on modern violin. I was, I was really reprimanded and said, is that what they teach you at Indiana university? I mean, at that time it was, it was not mainstream to be, I mean, now you turn on the radio and you hear Baroque music on Baroque instruments on original instruments. At the time where I was studying it, it was fringe even though it wasn't you know, no, I understand. So that's where well, he was it, coming it, from. And I don't remains, blame. It remains a very controversial subject. I think much less so though. Perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. But, but process, I love it. Anyway, back to process. how I play it, right? How I How do you I approach that piece? What do you do? Well, I have decided that I'm just going to do what I like and I don't care what anybody else thinks. <laughs> so the way I play Bach now <laughs> is is just how I love it, how it's it's how I feel it in the moment, which is informed by the old romantic style of playing on a modern violin. I don't like to play Bach that way anymore, though, because I've gone through decades of playing Baroque music on original instruments. I right. love playing the Bach Chacon in that style on a Baroque violin. But I decided to play this piece on the modern violin for this recording, and you know what, a week before I recorded it, I suddenly had this intuition that I wanted to change the pitch of my violin. So I tuned Uh, it down. I experimented with different pitches. My modern violin does not like 415, like A415, like my Baroque violin does. And so I tried other things and I settled on 432, which my violin absolutely loves. And I felt so good playing it at that pitch. I don't know anybody else who plays Bach at 432. And it kind of goes against the grain, but I don't care. So, okay, okay. so my my style is very much like a broke interpretation, but it's on. Describe a though color. to the listeners. This is uh, lay people watch this. I hope, mm-hmm. and listen to this on podcasts, on Apple. What is playing it in a baroque style mean? Mm. Well, there. When I was at IU, and I took. Baroque lessons from Stanley Ritchie, we would often spend a whole lesson on one line of music. And he would teach me in detail about the articulations of the period. Way back in Bach's time, um, the way that you used a bow, which was a Baroque bow at that time, a completely different shape. um, Right. 
it, it causes a different kind of sound. And so your notes tend to be shaped in a different way just because of how the bow is created and how it interacts with a Baroque violin, which is a really different instrument. So overall, it's maybe a, a softer, deeper, more resonant sound with a shorter articulation that has more shape in uh. the sense that it maybe a long note will swell, it'll grow in the middle and decrescendo or get, you know, get a little softer towards the end. It's more based on um, rhythm, more strict dance-like rhythm than a modern interpretation or a romantic interpretation, interpretation which is a longer, uh, people in the romantic period were going for long lines where you couldn't tell the difference between a down bow and an up bow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the way you, you play, the, the whole, it's a complete paradigm shift in how you approach Baroque music with that kind of an instrument. It's very illustrative for people who don't know the difference. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I know that there was a conductor I, I encountered a few years back um, who told a modern orchestra when he was doing Beethoven's symphony, no vibrato at all in the Beethoven symphony. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was an extraordinarily simplistic answer. Mm -hmm. And I bet they couldn't do it either. It sounded, it sounded <laughs> horrible. Well, in the Baroque period, vibrato was, was done. It was used, but it was an ornament. It was created. It, you used vibrato really intentionally to add you know, luster or a special effect to long notes especially so that something would stand out and you'd have a, a little different color and right. you could have a fast vibrato and slow vibrato and, and and it stood out and made something special instead of it's like if you eat cake every day it's not special anymore Ooh. what's <laughs> when would you use slow vibrato versus long vibrato and, and explain to our listeners what that is well, if you're not a string player and you don't know what vibrato is, when you wiggle your finger, uh, your, your left hand, the finger that touches the instrument, actually, you can slightly bend a note. You can move your finger just a very, a very little bit, like a millimeter or so in either direction, which makes it sound like the, the note gets a little more sharp or flat, and it just mm -hmm. gives it a little bit of a vibrational quality that it doesn't, it, it's a different vibrational quality. Right. It also increases the, you can project more in a certain way if you use vibrato. But the difference between a romantic vibrato and a Baroque vibrato is what? Well, I think it's not so much in the vibrato itself as in how and when you use the vibrato. How it's articulated, right? Yeah, right. I mean, ideally, with a modern instrument, um, I want to have an incredible amount of you know different types of vibrato at my disposal. That's how I was taught. I was taught to develop a very slow vibrato, fast vibrato, narrow vibrato, wide vibrato, and everything in between, but to have a really clear intention for how to use the vibrato to create certain effects in the music, like emotionally. And unfortunately, I think a lot of that nuance has been lost. In Let's talk about that process for players. a second, and then we're going to go into your new recording. Let's take the second movement of the Bach double, which we just talked about right before, about the, the Inescu Menuhin, very romantic recording mm -hmm. of the 1920s. 
when you know Menuhin was literally in kid pants and Nesco <laughs> was an older guy and they mm-hmm. had this incredible re- performance. Mm-hmm. The second movement has a melody, a falling melody, which is aped by the between the instruments. Okay. How would a romantic player first play that? Well, you would play it in such a way that it it feels like um, a tapestry that just continues. It's like an endless ocean. Uninterrupted, right? Yeah, you want these different lines to overlap that it's just seamless and like a sea of, of sound. Romantic player, lots of vibrato yeah. on pretty much every note. Okay? Right. right. Now, what would a Baroque player play that? Well, for one melody? thing, it would probably be a quite a bit faster. And uh, uh, and there's just more. Uh, it's hard to put into words, honestly. I think. Well, that's why I'm asking. This is we do. This is a word. Yeah. We can't. I didn't ask you to play today, but no, it, it's something I'm fascinated and by. And I so have it, perfor- performed this with Apollo's Fire as the soloist in New York, actually, years ago. Know, we did I our know. debut there. Um, yeah, and. It, how's the what's the difference well it's a little faster and so it's you're, you're bringing out different you're bringing out the dissonances for one thing which mm. you which you always want to do in baroque music they stress the the dissonances and the the most important thing is the harmony in mm. baroque music whereas the melody and the line is much more important in a modern or romantic interpretation and just that in that primary distinction makes the sound completely different and and you're so if you've got two voices together you really want to bring out the main melody of course but as the second violinist you really want to be you know stressing where you're you're dissonant you're at dissonance with a first violin and and you're just bringing out all the those special moments in a way you wouldn't otherwise so we go from process of studying scores in Romantic and Baroque eras and modern era to your most recent recordings, which are marvelous, oh, um, of Bach and Isai and Inescu. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about why you did this, what have you done, and where people can hear it. <laughs> oh, Take thanks, us through Megan. it. Well, honestly, I'm just so thrilled that I've been able to make this happen for myself. I turned 50 this year, and I've always wanted to, since I was a child, I just knew that I wanted to create solo recordings someday. And last year, I thought, "Uh uh-oh, I'm turning 50. If I'm not going to do it now, when am I going to do it? I better just get to it. And that was about you know, half a year before the pandemic hit, when I started taking action on this lifelong dream, I contacted an engineer and producer in Cleveland, Ohio, and talked about how we might do it. And I started practicing in earnest (laughs) with this in mind. Then when the pandemic hit, um, I had been trying to decide whether to do this in a studio in Cleveland, in Cincinnati, or from my home. And you know, that was decided for me by the pandemic when it became obvious that I obvious that I needed to create my own home recording studio. Now I knew nothing, nothing about how to record on my own, even though I've you know 
played on professional recordings many times before with ensembles. But this is the first time I just decided to do it all myself. So I bought the acoustic panels you can see behind me, um, hired an engineer to consult with on the sound for the space. I bought a ton of tech equipment. I had to learn the software. And then finally I did it. I had a producer in Cleveland and I found an engineer in Virginia. And we learned, I learned how to do it remotely with them so that I was actually in charge of the recording here with my equipment and communicating remotely on Zoom and through audio movers and apps so she could hear in real time without the latency problem. And we did it. So we did the Bach, we did the whole partita, and then we did the Isai together. And then at that point, I realized I could do it by myself. So a few months later, I took on the project of recording the Inescu Saraband by myself without a producer or engineer. And I've just sent that recording to an engineer to do the editing because I'm not interested in learning how to do that. So he'll do the editing and the mastering. Um, Terrific. He's already done most of it. Uh, so it's almost ready to go. But then the way it is these days is it was I was advised to release one thing at a time. Mm -hmm. um, so I've released the Shekhan. The Izai is coming out on, I believe, June 11th. It will be released and it can be you know, pre-saved now through Spotify. And then the UNESCO probably in a couple months and down, the, I might do one more Chrysler piece. I'm not sure yet, but in the fall, I'm going to release the full album. And I just can't tell you how happy I am that I was able to figure out how to do this. And I'm just really happy with the result. I hope people really, will really enjoy this you know, creation, which is true to my heart. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, Jennifer, I, I do have questions regarding uh, your other work that you do, and let's oh. talk, talk about <laughs> you, that. You're talking about my Art of Freedom method for conscious living and masterful artistry. Yeah, I, I met you actually. <laughs> I met you actually through my our colleague uh, Tim Fain, the great violinist. Yes. Uh, who I've written many pieces for, as you know, and um, that's how we met. And then I spent about six months working with you on Alexander Technique, and you are my teacher. Yeah, so, it was so much fun. <laughs> yes, it was. You're an amazing teacher. And uh, anyone watching this can see how communicative and uh, deeply wonderful you are. Let's talk about Alexander Technique. For those who don't know what that is, what is Alexander Technique? Ah, the million-dollar question. <laughs> the Alexander Technique is a mind-body system, discipline, that helps you become more conscious of how you're thinking and how your thoughts influence your body and your movements and the activities that you engage in. Anything from walking the dog to doing the dishes to playing the Bach Chacon, or in your case, conducting the BBC. Yeah, <laughs> right? well, what can I do? Right. So this system helps you to identify ways in which you're thinking that get in the way of your natural design sponta and spontaneous creative flow mm -hmm. so that whatever you decide to do with yourself, it becomes easier, more effortless, and definitely more fun. You get better at whatever you're doing with less effort. 
I think it's pretty miraculous. I love it. I think you're right. Because I think (laughs) for those people who are skeptical, this is not voodoo. This is for real. Oh, yeah. And it's so simple. It's ridiculous. (laughs) It's simple. And it also is directly related to who we are in our essence. If you look, if you look at, look at my grandsons, they're practicing Alexander technique every second. They haven't forgotten how to pr- practice total relaxation, total everything of, <laughs> of every instant. But then, yet, as they grow, as people grow older, we tense up and we let the mind tell us what to do. Right. As I mentioned to you, I've used many of the techniques that you taught me. You're a great teacher. Oh, and it's all online, you, by the way. It was otherwise we wouldn't have been able to work together. Yeah, we've never physically met, which That's we will right. remedy. Yes, but, I'm sure. <laughs> I hope, but. Mm-hmm. It has not only helped me in performing, which I'm looking forward to using, the etudes that we've discussed, like Scarecrow and um, the cycle and so many other things, before I go out and perform. Right. Great, and you know, actually, great... I'll just interject that those things that you just mentioned, like the cycle, for instance, yeah. that's directly, it's actually a primal Alexander etude. Right. It's in the hands-free method that I teach by Mio Morales. Right, which I had Alexander training, as you know, previously mm-hmm. with the Farkas, who's wonderful, when I studied years ago with uh, up at Bard mm-hmm. with Harold Farberman so over 20 years ago. And uh, Farkas is magnificent. Yes, uh, colleague of mine. Yeah, he's wonderful. But, yeah, but he's a hands-on type. Yes. You've taught me other things, which I know that you and Mio have developed, which are uh, various ways of getting to the root of who we are physically and mentally and paving the way. One thing that I did find, which I told you I've used, and it's really working over and over again, I found in composing, as opposed apart from conducting, I found that in composing, sometimes I would reach a kind of crunch in my head and I would fold into myself and I was un- unable to continue because ideas weren't coming to me fast enough or right or correct. Or... And since I've been using these techniques, a basic of trying to calm myself, and it's succeeding, mm-hmm. and also not letting this work as much as the ear and the spirit and the sense and all that stuff, composing has become so much easier. That's wonderful. No, it's a big success. And I think I, inspiration is natural. I think the creative process is natural and it uh, shouldn't it shouldn't be hard and it should be easy and enjoyable and it certainly shouldn't be painful. Painful. Now let's get to that because I wanted that was my next question. Mm-hmm. Some many of the A2s and studies that you have in the classes that you give mm-hmm. are to performing players. Yes. And you talk I specialize to them. in teaching musicians. Right. And you talk about the release of pain through using many of these techniques. Could you give an illustration of that? Yeah. Well, most people who do come to me for help, musicians, are experiencing excess tension in their whole systems. And very often it's manifesting to the point that they are in pain, like they have tendinitis or back pain, neck pain, carpal tunnel, you name it. And most people think that if you have physical pain, you have a physical problem. 
And if you're feeling physical pain in a certain specific area of the body, that's where the problem is. So they go to a doctor or a chiropractor, or some other kind of specialist who is going to focus on the physical body. And especially they're going to focus on that specific part of the body where you're feeling it. And very often there is actually something physical wrong, but it is never just a physical issue. And there was actually a study done in 2012, I believe, in Australia that really came to the conclusion that any kind of treatment that only addresses the physical body is unlikely to be really successful because people who experience physical pain also have an emotional component to it right. and the thoughts are part of it. So any kind of treatment needs to also address the mental and emotional aspects like performance anxiety, yeah. depression, yeah. which so many artists experience. Yeah, yeah. So the great, wonderful thing about this work that I'm teaching, and especially the primal Alexander part of it, is that it's so quick that on day one, when I work with my students, they are able to discover that they can think differently to get different results. And almost universally on day one, somebody with pain ha can start to feel hopeful because they realize that there's something they can do to shift their thinking that relieves the pain slightly. I've, I'm not even sure I've ever worked with anybody personally who wasn't able to do this and mm. recognize that there was potential there for them healing themselves no through, through doing this process. It's so simple, Last <laughs> but point very we, powerful. <laughs> I know, I, I, I'm, a, I'm yeah. a believer. And not only a believer, it's, it's so useful, useful, Jennifer. Yeah, you know, I just yeah. had a student, yeah. I'll just tell you really briefly, yeah. you asked for an example. I have a student who is a professional cellist and she just started my program. It's called the Musician's Jumpstart the Musician's Advantage Jumpstart Program. It's a short 30-day intensive. She had done two years of hands-on Alexander work with a teacher. She's done Feldenkrais. She's done almost daily yoga for years. She's tried everything. She's a music educator. She's a great teacher, great cellist, and yet she was having pain. So she found my my program. And literally, I just posted to Facebook about this. She wrote that one and a half weeks into my program, she was pain free. That's great. Yeah. Well, I mean, I am, I am humbled. I'm in awe at what's possible when people decide to think differently. Well, and I, I hope everybody ideas. Everybody <laughs> understands why uh, there's no pain when you speak to Jennifer Roy, frankly. <laughs> You're sweet. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me, me and our audience on Interplay, Conversation and Music. Thank you so much, Michael. I love talking to you. And now when you turn off the, the recording, we're going to catch up. We're going to certainly catch up. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks again so to, Je to Jennifer uh, Roik-Frankerly for joining us on Interplay, Conversations and Music. I'm your host, Michael Shapiro.